Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Steve Sippa. Steve, after my appearance at Pitch Talks last Thursday, a member of the Amazing Avenue staff, who shall remain nameless, Greg Karam, uh, said that I had accurately captured my sort of attitude of alcoholic self-deprecation that I use on the podcast every week. So in that spirit, what is the silliest, stupidest, funniest thing you have done related to the Mets involving alcohol? Probably the silliest, stupidest is not watch them with alcohol involved. (laughs) This team team needs alcohol to uh, make it bearable. And uh, Greg Karam knows this better than anyone since we sent him off to get beer at Friday night's game, and he came back with a ton of Miller Lite tall boys. He did. Excellent choice, Greg. Really brandishing your craft beer bona fides there. 
But in his did... defense, the, that that particular stand didn't really have too too much. It's true, and he did say quantity over quality, which when you're watching the Mets and alcohols involved is not a bad philosophy, really. Uh, for me, <laughs> uh, we there was also a question on stage about our most disappointing memories of Mets fans, Mets fandom. Since 1986, this was the panel with me, uh, Matt Cerrone, and Darren Meehan from the Seven Line. We talked about it a little bit backstage, so we didn't end up repeating, and they took the last day in 2008 and 2007, respectively, which is fine. I'm happy to talk about... Well, not happy, but uh, I'm fine talking about uh, the 2006 NLCS with the Cardinals, at least now, nine years later. But I do have a fun memory of the 2008 last day. I think I've told my multiple Jack Daniels 2007 last day story but uh 2008 we were actually up at my well wife's at that time girlfriend's parents and i finagled it so i could watch the last day of the season i think it was actually uh, must have been an sny game um but having learned my lesson from 2007 there was no way i was watching this game sober but i'm still not gonna like i don't really want to get smashed in front of my girlfriend's parents, so it's like, what am I going to do here? So, they had, I think, orange soda in the house. So I'm like, what can you mix with orange soda that won't really give it away? Now, logically, I probably should have gone with vodka, but I went with Southern Comfort for some reason, probably because we did a lot of, like, Fanta and Southern Comfort parties at Hampshire. I don't know why we did that, either. Certainly was not my first choice. And it's actually kind of terrible to drink. Well, the taste doesn't matter. Did it work? uh... Oh, yeah, it absolutely worked. By the time Oliver Perez was being Oliver Perez in that game, I was uh, far enough along to not really care so much. So it, it had the intended effect, I guess, at that point. It's really... It should be a little painful, too. It should not be a pleasant experience, even on the alcohol end. (laughs) Well, I have to say that Sunny Delight and vodka is my podcasting drink of choice. So that's horrible. I made a, uh, <laughs> I may actually made a pisco sour tonight. Though. It's a little chilly. I wasn't. I was debating if I wanted to do a summery drink yeah, it is or cold. a wintery drink. So I did a pisco sour. But I, I don't know. We have eight emails. I don't know. if I have enough to get through eight emails. We'll see. I may need to make a pit stop. And that'll pretty much be your show. It's uh, episode one hundred and twenty of Amazing Avenue Audio. And we'll weave in some topics that I wanted to, to get to this week, sort of in and amongst your eight emails. But uh, I just can't do another show on the six-man rotation and the Mets offense being bad. We've done like three. I think the last three. Nothing still, has changed. Not much has changed. They still haven't actually gone to a six-man rotation. And they're still which, bad. Yeah, which yeah, their offense is still bad, especially tonight with Lucas Duda out of the lineup. Recording this on Monday night as the Mets head out to San Diego on the West Coast, so I can uh, record without fear of... Well, not fear, so I'd still be watching the game right now. Without the distraction of a Mets game. So I have that going for me. So yes, the sum and total of the agenda are your emails. And of course, an IFK Gothenburg update, and since Steve is on the show, we'll talk a little bit about Elimination Chamber. But that is a ways away. And before we do your emails, we do housekeeping. So yeah, this is still Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 120. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast. I've already just said this two minutes ago, so it doesn't really have the same 
don't want to say impact, but it's, it's silly because you haven't forgotten it in the 45 minutes where we usually talk about other things. But anyway, Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. Find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. And join our Facebook group at Facebook.com backslash Amazing Avenue. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio, and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com backslash Amazing Avenue. Listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post in Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Steve Sippa. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Sippa. That was the housekeeping. This is your show, and it's mostly emails. And, of course, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Our first email is from Frank. Gents, love the show. Was wondering if you could share your thoughts related to the idea of moving Flores to third base and calling up Matt Reynolds. Random Met Memory of the Week. July 31st, 1989, Mets acquire Frank Sweet Music Viola from Minnesota for Aguilera and Prospect. I believe that was Kevin Tappany, if I recall correctly. Do the Mets have a blockbuster... And a couple other guys, maybe. Do the Mets have a blockbuster deal for this season? It's from Frank in Plainville, New York, who apparently is the former high school baseball teammate of Brian Renzi, who is not on the show this week. It's bad planning by me. Or by Brian. I don't know. Maybe he's busy. So... So we'll start at the top. And this is good, because it allows me to talk about some things that have happened this week. Mm-hmm. And one of them is David Wright is still hurt. Still no good. Uh, Wilmer Flores is still playing shortstop. Still playing that, no good. And Ruben Tejada is the everyday third baseman. That is definitely no good. Uh, I mean, Tejada's been hitting, but sort of at what point uh, Terry Collins came out in his pregame presser today, and let me get the exact quote. Yeah, it was pretty damning. There's no impetus to reconfigure infield alignment unless there's a conclusion David Wright will miss a prolonged period. Um, David Wright has been out for two months. (laughs) David Wright will probably be out for another two months. Uh, There seem to be some theorizing on Twitter that maybe they're just waiting for Dilson Herrera to get back, which is fine. If that's your long-term strategy. Dilson Herrera's not coming back and playing third, so why not play Murphy at third now, too, to get him more used to it by the time Dilson Herrera's back? I mean, I could understand the short term. They're wanting to, you know, plug round hole, round, you know, pegs into square holes. But at this point, two months later, this, I, I just don't understand the point of any of this. I mean, Ruben Tejada had not played any professional third base until this spring. You know, Murphy came up as a third baseman, and played there a fair amount. I'll say a fair amount, but got some reps there the last couple of years when Wright was hurt. You know, not a ton, but he's not completely unfamiliar. And again, he came up as a third baseman. Ruben Tejada came up as a shortstop. Um, and yeah, if Ruben Tejada was going to be your generic utility infielder guy, playing him a, once in a while at third, not a big deal. Playing him every day at third, while playing Daniel Murphy at second is uh, not the ideal defensive alignment. Which is saying something on the 2015 Mets. Because <laughs> they're using some unfucking ideal defensive alignments in general. Um, I suppose you actually get to Frank's question. They're just not... It's just not going to happen now. No. They're not moving Flores to third base this season. 
they've committed to him to be the old the full-time shortstop and that's that they've had how many opportunities now to shift him over to third or to even just to second if they wanted to with all the injuries and they haven't so i see no reason why they would just randomly start to start it now yep i mean you could even make a case for calling up matt reynolds to play third every day he was a he was a college third baseman at arkansas a pretty good defensive one but it i mean it's entirely possible and i've reached out through some back channels and I don't get the impression that the organization has a great idea on what the David Wright timetable is but I can't imagine anybody thinks it's you know pre you know he's been back for the all-star break maybe not even this season that seems like you may need to figure out a full-time third baseman. Preferably someone that's played there before March 1st of this, this year. Well, it seems to go back to a recurring theme that we've had the last couple of podcasts about the team, about the organization being very hesitant to pull the trigger on any kind of, you know, long-term impactful move. Be it be a trade, be it calling someone up, be it changing the rotation, be it shifting guys over to different uh, positions and at that point we're getting really down on the impact scale too <laughs> right well I'm just saying I mean it's a, it seems to be like a recurring theme I mean Juan Uribe and I was available for not much and look Juan Uribe's had a bad what seven eight weeks eight weeks eight weeks I guess a bad eight weeks of baseball and he's not young, he's 36, and a bad eight weeks of baseball can portend more for a 36-year-old than maybe it does for a younger player. Cough, Michael Kadir. <laughs> yeah. Though, uh, since being traded to the Braves, he has a uh, 1139 OPS in five games. But regardless, the last two years, he was a well-above league average hitter for the Dodgers. And he's a very, very good defensive third baseman. And if you just want to go by baseball references, war, it's worth eight wins the last two seasons. Four and four. And he's not making that much money this year. You know, six and a half million. And the Dodgers seem pretty happy to offload that, so of course they can play Justin Turner, who the Mets non tendered two seasons ago, as their everyday third baseman. But that's neither here nor there, for the purposes of this conversation, at least. You know, Juan Uribe would probably be a huge upgrade over the three-headed monster at third, if they're insistent on not moving Daniel Murphy over to third. Now, trades don't always work that way. It's not like, you know, you go onto your Fantasy League message board and post your available list. They clearly, I, it seems like they wanted Kayas, folks. Even after it fell apart the first time, they they came back That's to the true. Braves to get him and moving whatever other sort of secondary pieces got moved in that deal. But you know that that's the kind of move the Mets need to consider making. And I mean, <laughs> moving Murphy to third and Tejada to second base until Herrera's healthy again is fine. 
Is it ideal? No, but it's fine. I don't know why they won't do it. It might be ideal when you consider defensive prowess of the respective players. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it improves the team overall. No matter what you get out of Tejada and Murphy, because Murphy's probably a little better at third than he is at second. Tejada is a, a decent enough second baseman. Actually, his arm's a little... I don't say his arm's short for shortstop, but his arm is not a weapon at short, and that's kind of mitigated by moving him over to second. So it makes the team better. And again, if Murph hadn't played already played third this year, then maybe he say, oh, he's not... Any refs this year might take a little while. He's played third for a couple weeks. Right, it's not like... And he played season. third for a couple weeks last year, and again, he came up as a third baseman. I have no idea why they won't do this. It's just one of those weird things where... I don't know if it's a TC thing. It might very well be. He wants to do as little to disrupt... Disrupt, in quotes, the team as possible during the season. But, you know, it's... you know, There's a lot of guys hurt. you got to be a little flexible. you got to be a little creative whether it's with defensive alignments or playing time or um, lineup construction. I mean, he's playing Tejada at third base, so he's already disrupting the Feng Shui, so he might yeah. as well just go overboard and do the right thing. I don't think Tejada's been awful <laughs> there, but... No, he's been perfectly cromulent in the, what, four or five games that he's played? Yeah. I think putting him at second allows you to cheat. I don't know. Because the problem is Flores is so bad going to his left. So you want to cheat your... You'd really rather have a, a more rangy third baseman that can play off the line. I don't think Murph or Tahad are necessarily that. There's no good answers here, I guess. But Flores is not going anywhere. Shortstop, off shortstop at least. And look, he's okay. Okay, I wanna, I wanna tamp down the. Oh my God, he's hitting so many home runs. His and look, home runs are great. I wish more people on the Mets would hit more home runs. <laughs> Wilmer Flores' sole offensive contribution this year has basically been his eight home runs. He has five doubles, and he has a two seventy on base percentage. Yeah, the the OBP being that low is really a killer. If he could get it up to 300 with his power, that would be very nice. But And normally I would say, oh, 300 OBP, that's not that great. I mean, he could hit 20. I mean, if you just want if you just want empty home runs, I, like no Met is taking, Met fan, I think, would be signing on for bringing back Ike Davis's 30 home run season when he hit like 200 and was a below average major league regular. And, you know, 20 to 25 home runs from your shortstop is similar to... Actually, I mean, it's a little better than 30 home runs from your first baseman, but Davis at least walked. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's hit... He's on pace for roughly... I can do math. 25... I'd say 25 home runs. He has a 420 slugging percentage right now. And a 270 on base. He's under 700 OPS with eight bombs and a little under 50 games. 
that's hard to do. And, you know, you can point to his BABIP, which is not that high. Fine. He's not walking. I don't think that's going to change there. And if you look, I mean, we all watch the games. You can see what he does. He zones down and in. If he gets a thigh-high fastball or a thigh-high hanging whatever, on the inner half of the plate, he just stays in and turns on and hits it as hard as he can. Like, I joke, but I'd love to see a spray chart, because the only hits I've seen to the opposite field have been, like, mistakes off the end of the bat. He tries to pull everything. Yeah, I could think of a double, opposite field double once. Yeah. I don't know if it was this year, but <laughs> it was last. Well, there you go. Um, I'm not saying he has no opposite field hits. He probably has a few. But, I mean, he's a dead pull hitter that zones thigh high in it. And he's making it work. Is that sustainable against Major League Pitching over the rest of the season? I mean, maybe, but even if he keeps doing what he's doing, it's a 700 OPS shortstop that's not very good there. And look, that's playable. That's probably a second division starter. But you're counting on, like, a fair amount of home run for flat ball lock to get you there. I'm just saying don't be taking any victory laps yet. I mean, even by Fangraph's war, and we're looking at, I don't like looking at a third of the season of when the buffer plays Vendetta, but even by you know Fangraph's war, he's not much better. He's not on pace for much more than a slightly above average regular. So there's a lot of trade talk in this show, I'm not going to lie. But I guess we'll start here. We get asked about specific blockbusters later. But do the Mets have a blockbuster deal on them this season, Steve? In theory, yes, they have the pieces. And if rumors are true, there are other pieces out there that could wind up on the Mets that would benefit the Mets. Do I think that the trigger will be pulled? No, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I, just, I don't see it happening. I mean, where is is there not? So here's the problem with any blockbuster deal. Short of, I mean, yeah. I guess Carlos Gomez would be the one guy where they're not ta- where they're taking on less than twenty million dollars in in new money. But you know, they're not getting him for Nice and Ligaris. Certainly, it's not happening. Um, you know, they get we have a Ryan Braun question later. Yeah, I mean, I, all nice guys to have. Love to have Ryan Braun. Love to have Troy Tulowitzki. Uh, let's go. Who else might be out there? Gerardo Parra seems to be the new, like, Jock Peterson. Well, I wouldn't consider him being a blockbuster kind of Again, yeah, so player, but... you just don't know who's out there yet in terms of, like, I guess there were a couple pieces on the site that I was working on an editing project all day, so I didn't actually get to read these, but... I saw in passing there were uh, a couple of pieces on the site by uh, Lucas and Kate around this sort of topic. Ben Zobrist, you count him as a blockbuster? Yeah, I would. Alex Guerrero, Gene Segura. Nope. You know, like Yasiel Puig. Yeah, that's, that's a definitely going to happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> You know, guys like Carlos Gomez and Ryan Braun get covered here too. But 
I just they've shown no interest on taking on money. I mean, this came up in in pitch talks as well, and I promise not to. I mean, at this point, it's over, so I'm not even plugging it. But I promise not to reference it throughout the rest of the show. But you know, Anthony DeComo basically came out and said, you know, they're competitive with a hundred and five million dollar payroll. Why are they going to go to one twenty and one thirty when they don't quote unquote have to? I mean, if they had a hundred thirty million dollar payroll, they could paper over some pretty big holes in the team right now. But they're, you know, that at least is kind of shitty. I think is what we've. You want to say one thing we've learned through the first third-ish of the season? I would have thought the Nationals might have put a little more distance between them and the Mets. Like I've I've been saying since day one, they're a very good team. They're going to win the division, but I think they've been overhyped because, for the most part, the pitching staff just seemed to be playing over their heads. And their pitching year. staff is hurt right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the Mets have been 8-7 and seven in their last 15 games. I think they've actually picked up a game on the Nationals over that time. I mean, they've lost a game. Like that, but they've, been, they've played them pretty close over the last 15 games. Um, which is not... I don't think it necessarily is predictive, but considering how completely barren that lineup is right now due to the injuries and guys not hitting, that's not too shabby all in all. It's a good thing that we built up that rather large uh, yeah, winning true. streak yeah. at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Maxine Ellis from Kerry. Good morning, Jeff and cohorts. Even being that it's fueled by a totally unsustainable 438 BABIP, how hilarious is Lucas Duda's current 226 weighted runs created plus against lefty pitching. Baseball is weird. Best carry, formerly of Brooklyn, formerly of NOLA, currently of Brooklyn. So that's come down a little bit since uh, Carrie emailed us. I think his BABIP is down to like 412 against lefties, maybe? That's sustainable. 438, no, but 412, yeah, definitely. Um, but we'll get the up-to-date stats for you, the listener. So, as a, against lefties, he's hitting 367, 446, 653 for 1099 OPS. 209 weighted runs created plus with a 412 BABIP. And his numbers against righties, 271, 375, 496 for an 871 OPS with a 333 BABIP. Um, that righty line is pretty close to his... And it's well within his career norms. So, what are we to make about Lucas Duda's 56 plate appearances against left-handed pitching this year? Now look, like with the Wilmer Flores conversation, Lucas Duda is going to start against most lefties from here on out. That's just what's going to happen. Will Terry Collins still... You know, when he does give him a day off, will he, you know, when he's not you know, nursing a sore knee from getting hit on the knee... Uh, when they you have to give him a regular day off, will, he, will Terry Collins do it against the lefty starter? Probably. Now, I don't think anyone thinks he suddenly has a reverse split now. But what can we really glean from this? So the K percentage is down, and that tends to stabilize fast. He's striking out less than 20% of the time against lefties against over 30% for his career. The power has gone through the roof. He has... Uh, four of his nine home runs against 
lefties this year. So what here is actually sustainable? So I'm not entirely by it. Look, do I think he's better against lefties now than he was in past seasons? Yes. Mm-hmm. His approach looks better, focusing on going the other way. You know, the good lefty specialists are still getting him out, but that's what they're there for. Um, I do think that K rate will go up. I think that Babbitt will go down. I think the power will go down. I don't think he's going to have a 25% home run per fly ball rate against lefty. I don't think they have a 25% home run per fly ball rate, period. You know, his his right-handed rate of about 12%, about half, 12.5% this year, is more, again, within his career norms. I know he's not getting a lot of, if you're into the hard contact exit bellow crap, um, he's not getting it, he's getting more hard, hard contact against righties than lefties. You know, he's not really working, he's going up the middle more against lefties, actually going to the opposite field less. But again, we're talking about tiny batted ball samples at this point. I mean, basically, it's it's sort of Voros's law. Any player can do anything in 56 plate appearances, or really even 100 plate appearances. And again, his numbers against lefties for his career, even with a really, really good 56 plate appearances, baked in this season, Still a 660 OPS. Like, how heavily do you really want to weight those last 56 plate appearances? Because his first 56 plate appearances against righties this year were not good. I didn't... wish I'd captured the numbers at the time. But a lot of his early season success was based on him just mashing lefties and not doing much against righties. And nobody said, oh, he can't hit righties now because of a bad 56 plate appearances against them. So I think it's a little disingenuous to say he's made some sort of major change that make the 56 plate appearances against lefties more sustainable. I would definitely give the more recent plate appearances a little bit more weight because I do think that he has changed his approach, but they are 50, you know, they are less than a good chunk of at-bats against you know, lefty pitching. You know, any player, I don't care, even Mike Trout, you know, David Wright, guys that sustain a high bat, if they had 56 plate appearances with a 412 batting average on balls in play, you just, you wouldn't even consider it. You'd immediately regress to the largest sample you could. And I think you have to do that with Duda. Again, I think he's better. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to, because of sort of the timing of this good sample, probably get more at-bats against lefties the rest of the year than he otherwise should. But if he's more like a true talent level you know, 720 OPS guy against lefties now, you know, you consider rolling that out there just because I think there is a benefit to playing every day and keeping a guy in, in rhythm if he's not killing you. You know, they're still going to be at-bats late in the season where they probably should pinch hit from against like a tough lefty specialist, you know, Mike Dunn or I don't know who the other tech lefty specialists are. You know, should he see a Raldis Chapman in a big spot? <laughs> you know, Andrew Miller. No, it doesn't really matter with Andrew Miller, I guess. Um, I think there. I think that's where you're going to see the 
see it bite the Mets a little bit. Not against the soft-tossing lefty starter, but against the, the lefty specialist. you got to consider the profile of the guy he's facing in addition to just the handedness. Even in cases like that, I mean, he might be the best option even off the bench. You know? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's the other problem right now yeah. is you're not pinch hitting with anyone for Lucas Duda because that bench is really bad. I mean, normally I would say, okay, well, it's nice that he might have a you know a 700 OPS against lefties, but John Mayberry would have, you know, normally, career-wise, whatever, should have like a 900 OPS against lefties. So due to being adequate, it's still not enough when you have a guy like that. But, I mean, Mayberry has just not really been performing. Our next email is from Hank. Dear Mr. Patanostro and Appertenance. Appertons. I guess Hank hasn't emailed us in a while, so I guess he's uh tried to come back with some more synonyms for co-host. <laughs> Appertenant pertains to something that attaches. This is a property law convention. Oh, it's like an easement. So you're like my garden uh garden walkthrough or something. I know you have been on the acquire Carlos Gomez bandwagon. I have. I don't think a trade like that is going to take place until the trade deadline, which can coincide with the return of Wright. Yahweh willing, Wright will be back way before. I guess we'll have clarity on that in a couple of days, which does not sound ominous at all. I was thinking about what the Mets can do around the margins to maximize their production until then. Let Sean, Mar- Sean Gil Martin go and trade for a Joe Thatcher. Trade something for Alex Guerrero and move Flores to third. I mean, I think the Dodgers aren't playing Alex Guerrero at shortstop. Like, they signed him a lot of money. Like, he wasn't even a shortstop coming out of Cuba. He's playing left field, I think. No, he's not a shortstop. He's a second baseman. He played some shortstop, but a lot of players in Cuba do just kind of get mixed and matched. <clears throat> and move Flores to third base. Sign Rafael Soriano to set up Familia. Find some bet left-handed bench bat or other. What do you think is the most pertinent need that can be easily upgraded before the blockbusters at the deadline? Also, which players would you choose to fill that marginal upgrade? If you will allow it, I have a simple second yes or no query. Would you trade something but not much not much, for Ryan Braun and take all of his contract? Um, so, sort of the, the around-the-margins move. And given the state of their bench right now, um, and also given that... I suppose... When Darno, say Darno and Herrera are both back in two weeks, which seems about right to me. You know, at that point, Ploiecki goes back down. Probably one of Campbell or M- and Mano go back down. You know, the outfield. So at that point, you're really looking for like a, a fourth outfielder, like a high quality fourth outfielder, like Gerardo Parra. Um, would be the most pressing need, I think. I'm not... So the left-handed... relief doesn't... I mean, yes, it would be nice to have someone a little more reliable than Sean Gilmartin. And... You know, and Alex Torres, yeah, fine, I guess. And you'd like sort of that true lefty, Louie type, left-on-left guy. And Gilmartin hasn't been awful... But he basically just throws a million curveballs. And weirdly, they've used him more as a... More of a mop-up guy... Than a... Uh, 
sort of lefty one-out guy. You know, they use Jack Leathersitch most recently, which is fine. I don't care. They can use Jack Leathersitch. I get the minor league reverse splits. It's still, you know, maybe the hitter he's facing is worse against left-handed pitching in general. Put a lefty up there. It's not like he's a big changeup guy. He's just going to throw 91 to 94 from a weird arm angle. And I think once, you know, Herrera's back and they move Murphy to third, Tejada's a perfectly cromulent utility infielder. So yeah, at that point, it's like, do you want a fourth outfielder or do you want a left-handed bench bat? I think they're going to need to move to get one more big setup guy. Uh, one big, one more big relief arm. I'm just not counting on anything from Black and Parnell. I don't think you see Bobby Parnell this year in the majors. And Black's going to be back, but I don't know that he's really a guy you want to move immediately into that eighth inning role. He just doesn't have a really, huge track record there. Yeah, you know, even when he was healthy, I don't think, to, for me anyway, he was never someone that I really felt could be trusted for that role, given his, you know, weaknesses with walks. And the problem with those guys are, it's like, those are the guys that don't get traded early. As a general, for whatever reason. Um, you might teams want to jump on the big upgrades as early as possible actually because you have more time for them to make a difference because variant swamps everything in two months you know if you get guys on june 31st it gives you an extra month to sort of maybe wash out some of that and get guys closer to their true talent level over the balance of the season just sort of every additional game you can get. A, if that dude's an upgrade, that's an extra great game you're getting an upgrade. And B, again, anything can happen. Like, anything can happen in 56 plate appearances. In 60 games, anything can happen. So getting an extra 25 games just sort of gives you a larger sample size, and the player is more likely to play towards that true talent level, which is the upgrade you're looking for. Now, of course, the reverse is true. You can get a guy for 60 games, and he can play way over his head, but on balance, you want to try to get as many games of that upgrade as possible. I would go for the fourth outfielder. Just that, given the... given Kadair and Granderson's injury history, given that Lagaris is playing hurt right now, you're getting an actual good fourth outfielder that can step in and be an everyday center fielder in a pinch. And again, we're basically describing Gerardo Parra. Mm-hmm. Though there are other players like there out there, Scott Van Slyke, for example. But getting that guy in as soon as possible, when you're not dealing for one out of necessity, you're not sort of over the barrel, uh, and they don't have that guy internally. No, that's the biggest issue. You know, if, if Brandon Nemo was healthy, could he have been broken in that way? Yeah, maybe. I I don't don't think I would have been, even been necessarily opposed to it. But he's not, and there's no other outfield depth to speak of. I mean, you know this. Daryl Siliani is starting tonight. <laughs> so I think that's, if they were going to jump on something early, that's the move to make. Because that's the thing that's going to, that's more likely to bite them in the ass between now and July 31st. 
Oh, what else do I have here? I had this all, like, in an order. I'm asking else from David. What's up, gents? Just said a few things I wanted you guys to comment on. As usual, thanks. Keep up the good work. Here are a couple of trades. We're going to keep going. We have Guys, we have eight weeks until the trade deadline. At some point, I'm just going to stop reading your trade proposals on there. I don't know when it's going to be. I'm just warning you ahead of time. That's the thing that's going to happen. Because I can't do this for eight weeks. But until then, here are a couple trades that I believe can help us all out, out all around and are doable. Mets get Ben Zobrist and Tyler Clippard for Reynolds or Ploiecki. Their choice and their choice of Montero or Nisar G. Then trade Nisar G to Los Angeles for uh, Scott Van Slyke. Have Gavin, okay, so we'll start there. No. Yeah, it's... Uh, Not to be mean. I think... This isn't just true of Mets fans. Every team's fans does this. Look at the trades that get made. And, and last year's a, a, not a great example because last year's trade deadline was was weird and that like there were really no prospects changing hands. And the Red Sox did a bunch of dumb shit. But Billy Bean knows how valuable Ben Zobris and Tyler Kleppert are to a major league club at the deadline that needs relief help or you know, Ben Zobers can play anywhere, but whatever. You know, look at what Eric Gagne got traded for at the time. Again, a lot of this is, is post-time. So look at the quality of, of prospects those type of guys get traded for at the time. And, you know, Ploiecki hasn't done himself any favors with his performance so far, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to kill a catcher for his first, first 200 major league plate appearances. But... You know, if you're looking to trade that guy, he was more valuable on April 15th than he is on June 1st. It's just the way the world works. You know, you also just named three pitchers with arm issues. Well, G had a groin issue, but has had arm issues in the past. You know, Billy Bean values years of control. He wants your best prospect. I think, you know, when you hear things like Nice and Ligaris for Carlos Gomez, I'm just like, what? Have you been watching baseball at the deadline the last few years? <laughs> you see, Jeff Samarja got traded for Addison Russell and Billy McKinney. And Zobrist is, well, Samarja had an extra year on the back end, but... You know, value-wise, and yeah, so Billy Bean went for you. You know, there's not going to be any shortage of buyers, given that there's no really good teams right now. There's a lot of tight divisional races. It's not just that they have to give Billy Bean an offer commensurate with the value of Ben Zobris and Tyler Clippard, that they have to beat every other team's offer for Ben Zobris and Tyler Clippard. Bad package is not doing so. No. Has Gavin Chikini's numbers in Double A changed anyone's opinion of his ceiling? I'm not big into minor league stats, but his stint in Double A has been a huge success. I'm not big on minor league su- stats either, David. And he was hurt for the four games 
when I saw them in New Hampshire, when I saw the BMETs in New Hampshire. And we'll be going back up, we're going up to Binghamton in a couple weeks, to specifically to see Cheney as well as Conforto and hopefully Robert Gesellman. But I think for a guy like Gavin Cheney, where you're not betting on huge tool jumps between now and his future sort of major league projection. I mean, even when he was drafted, he was not considered a very projectable guy. Which, I mean, doesn't say anything. Everybody gets better. At least any guy that gets to the majors gets better throughout his minor league career. But you weren't betting on, like, you know, him suddenly turning into a 20-home run guy. Or anything like that. Though he's hit for more power in AA. But I think for a guy with that profile, uh, minor league production, especially at that level, means something. Again, we're talking about probably 40 games. I could actually easily look this up, which I will do now. Because he also missed some time with an injury, so I'm going to guess. 41 games. Ah, I'm pretty good. Close. Uh, 320, 375, 477. He's striking out in less than 10% of his plate appearances. Um, almost a 1-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Uh, you know, four home runs which is not insignificant. You know, if he can be a 10 home run guy at the major, that majors, that helps hit a lot of doubles. And again, it's double A, but he's very young for the level. And that kind of production does... It matters more for a guy like him than maybe a, a toolsier guy, as weird as that is to say. Like, if I thought there was a toolsy guy that was taking advantage of 88 to 90 mile an hour fastballs in double A because he could, because you see a lot of those there, maybe the swing doesn't work at the major league level, there's really nothing in Cicchini's game that won't play at a... the majors that's playing now. I mean, yeah, he's going to see better breaking stuff. He's going to see better fastballs. He's probably not a 320 hitter in the majors because almost nobody is. But I think good production always beats bad production. And for Cicchini, it's better than it otherwise would be. You know, for, uh, you know, the Jace Boyd hitting that, uh, hitting at those levels. I don't remember, Steve. Are you a big Gavin Chikini guy? Not really. I mean, I'm a lot less down on him now than I was about, you know, two years ago, give or take, whatever it was, but he just is. I'm happy that he's doing, you know, he's doing well. Obviously, I'm not going to root against one of our own prospects. I think I'll I'll put this, uh, put this a different way. If he wasn't hitting in double A, it would be a problem. Because there's nothing for him to fall back on. Mm. But I mean, he's even surpassing uh, my expectations. And I like what I saw. I'm curious. I guess they tweaked his swing again. But again, he was hurt for four games. Like, literally, I think the three games before and the one game after. I think he actually might have been back into the lineup the first day after they left New Hampshire. Which is usually how it works for me. 
Any truth to the rumor that the Mets are considering signing Rebel Wilson and putting her in a seven-man rotation? Uh, this is not Jason Wojciechowski's uh, podcast, so I have no, no strong feelings on Pitch Perfect. But it does give me an opportunity to make a quip about the six-man rotation, which if the six-man rotation such as a necessity, why do they keep pushing Dylan G back? And specifically pushing Dylan G back to keep Syndergaard and Harvey on regular rest when sort of the stated reason for having a six-man rotation is basically those two dudes are on innings counts. Something, something, kick the can down the road. Why did that going on? I mean, it's really hilarious. I don't think Dylan G had to make a second rehab start. He made a third rehab start and then had to sit for a week plus. Makes zero sense. Nope. Our next email is from Michael. Hello, hosts. Jeff, you repeatedly stated the Mets have a two-year window because of Kadire and Granderson, along with the money owed to them. I disagree. As you know, these guys are not world beaters. They are stopgap, complimentary players who are brought in here to fill the outfield void left by Omar. The contracts are indeed large for such roles, but that's the cost of doing business in MLB these days. Hell, Cano has owned eight years and $200 million this past year, and he's merely a replacement-level player right now. It's June 1st. Let's calm down. <laughs> this organization has funneled most of its resources into scouting and player development, and now is willing to put its money where its mouth is. Conforto and Nemo, assuming his ACL holds up, that's a big assumption, could not only replace but supersede the production we are getting from Kadire and Granderson as soon as next year. Maybe. In fact, I could see Sandy being inclined to trade Granderson if he has a good season. I'm sure he'd try. <laughs> After all, I only wanted to give him three years anyway. Kadire could very well be an expensive utility man post-All-Star break next year, bully for us. Herrera and Reynolds appear to be viable options over Daniel Murphy now and going forward. The right situation stinks, but at least his contract is somewhat front-loaded and Flores is going to be more than a capable replacement. I mean, assuming he ever plays any third. Yeah. (laughs) Plus, an early retirement would only provide this team with more money to spend. See, I don't think that's going to happen, though. (laughs) Don't even say that. Uh, I mean, the contract's insured if that, you know, he literally doesn't play for the next seven years. That's unlikely to happen. There are also plenty of guys who it's safe to say will at least be major leaguers at some point, such as Chikini, Boyd, Urania, Smith, and Rosario. Uh, I'm pretty sure Johan Urania is going to miss the rest of the season, but... There's, um... Yeah, we'll get back to that. Our pitching staff is young, dynamic, and controllable. That is true. And hey, if Harvey and Boris have the guts to pass on an early extension after already missing a year and a half due to injury, more power to them. But even that reality is three and a half years away. In summary, call me Pollyanna, but I firmly believe the window is just opening. Thoughts, Mike? Well, let's call him Pollyanna instead of Mike. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. This is not a really good farm system after this year. I mean, it's just not. Uh, You know, you name Cicchini and Rosario, those guys will be in the top five next year. Jace Boyd is maybe Eric Campbell. Johan Urania, I like like Johan Urania a lot. He has a a handmade break. That's bad. Dominic Smith has had a good month, and poor Jeff Moore needs to never come back from Jamaica and check his mentions, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, the problem isn't that Kadaya and Granderson haven't been great. It's that they don't really have, you know, if, if Conforto and Nemo just give you what Kadaya and Granderson are giving you, the team's not getting better. You know, how much of an upgrade immediately is Delson Herrera going to be over Daniel Murphy? 
And we've seen the issues Plowacki's had to adjusting to the majors. Now, even Herrera hasn't, you know... I like Dilson Herrera a lot. I think he's going to be a good hitter. But, you know, there's a learning curve here. And again, you're not improving the offense here. You're just replacing guys you already have in-house. You know, Steven Matz is probably a big upgrade over John Neese going forward. I'll grant you that. But past that, you got a lot of guys that might be decent major league regulars. Probably not all-stars. I mean, somebody will turn into a really good major leaguer because usually weird stuff happens like that with systems. You'll spit out some guy that's an above-average major league regular you didn't really expect. But a, a lot of these good guys could bust. You know, Brandon Nemo could be a quad A dude. Conforto might not make enough contact at the major league level. You know, Cicchini might not be do enough with the glove and the to sort of carry the two seven empty two seventy and be more of a fringy guy. It's the way it works. And when you're betting on I mean they didn't have any super high draft picks the last four years. And they don't have a fifteenth uh, fifteen you know, a first round pick this year. Which is a problem. They haven't been hyper aggressive in Latin America. I mean, yes, Rosario. It sounds like this July second they're gonna empty the vault a little bit, but those guys are six years away. Who knows? You know, we've got a team right now on the field that is well below average offensively, and. You know, some of the guys you named, as far as guys getting replaced, you know, Murphy, Kadire, and Granderson, they're not near the top of the list of problems. Again, not world beaters, but not near the top of the list of issues they have. You know, I think you look at this team at the end of 2017 or so, even the end of 2016, really. If you're not going to extend Harvey, you have to consider trading him at that point, sort of on the David Price model. Because at best, you're only getting a supplemental round pick now. This isn't like it was a couple years ago with Jose Reyes. We could say, oh, well, I'm getting a first and a sup. And they end up getting a second and a sup because of the Marlins. But you know that doesn't enter the calculus when you're considering to trade them on July 15th. You know, Wheeler's coming off Tommy John. I think Noah Syndergaard's going to be good. I think Steven Matz are going to be good. But they've got a pretty good pitching staff right now and they can't score enough runs to make it work <laughs> consistently I mean if you want to if you think the window is if you if you define the window as the Mets being playoff contenders you know 83 to 88 wins yeah it's probably larger than just the next two years but I don't really consider that a window. That's sort of the table stakes. You should be building that team every year. At a minimum. And if they spent more money, they could do that. But that's not going to happen. The entire question is just a lot of too many ifs. Yeah, it is just too many. I mean... Look at all the things the Nationals have had 
gone go wrong this year. And look, the Mets have been the Mets have lost David Wright, they lost Zach Wheeler, they lost Henry Mejia. Travis Darnot hasn't played in a month. Those are huge losses. And that's haven't had basically Doug Fister and Steven Strasburg healthy the entire season. They've gotten zero games from Anthony Rendon. You know, Denard Span missed time. And they're kind of in the same spot. But going forward, you know they'll spend money and you know they'll make trades if they need to. The Mets, I mean, don't get me wrong, the Mets could easily open this window wider by spending more money or cashing in some of these prospects for you know, a good player under a long-term deal. But that's and if you want me to be Pollyannish, I got to see some sign that they're going to do that. And obviously, over the last uh, four plus seasons, I have not, because it hasn't happened. So I supposed to touch on something there. I have my notes. I guess I was supposed to mention the minor league promotions here. I don't know why. I guess that's sort of tied in with what he was saying. But there were some minor league promotions this past uh, week, Steve. There have been. I mean, Jace Boy went to AAA. We're not really going to dwell on that. Um, I mean, the two big ones are Michael Conforto and Robert Gazelman breaking this organization and player development systems trend of making guys spend a full half year in St. Lucie. I think part of that is because St. Lucie's not really in a playoff race. Um, and Gazelman and Conforto didn't have a ton left to prove at that level. I mean, Gazelman especially. I have some... And I like Robert Gazelman. I think he's one of my guys. And Jeff Moore and I talked about him a lot a few weeks ago. But I think he's a guy that ne- obviously needed to get a double A to really test that secondary stuff because... It's not that he was missing a ton of bats at St. Lucie and in the Florida State League, but he was just dominating with like fastball command. And once that happens and guys can't make good contact against your you know, average to maybe a tick above fastball, it's time to find a new challenge because you're really not learning anything at that level at that point. And I think we'll see in, in AA. It's one start. Give up some more hard contact, miss some more bats. We'll see where he goes from there. Uh, and Conforto... Again, not a ton left to learn at Advanced A. He would have been up in three weeks anyway, so giving him an extra three weeks in in double A if he hits there, maybe give him a taste of Vegas before the end of the season. Again, we're talking about a lot of ifs, but at least allows you to maybe move the timetable up to, like, May 2016. Which I think, I know that, that... Keith Law and others talked about him sort of being really fast mover. You know, you could put him on sort of the Kyle Schwarber plan that the Cubs have. Oh, don't bring up Kyle Schwarber. You're going to get yelled at. Why am I going to get yelled at? I don't know. I got yelled at today. Bring up Kyle Kyle Schwarber. Schwarber. Well, I'm not saying Conforto would have hit as well as Kyle Schwarber given the same aggressive track. It's certainly possible. Um, I mean, you don't know. But... Or was it the number four pick versus number ten pick thing? Yeah, oh, yeah I think I responded to that in the comments. I yeah, never go yeah. into the comments of the 
Daily Miami reports anymore, but I think I actually responded to that word. I think Schwarber actually got, eh, I think he got a little more money than Conforto, but not much. Which really what you have to look at when sort of gauging. Either way, my point for those who listen to both the podcast and read our daily minor league reports. I assume there's simply, some overlap. I, I would hope so. I could think of at least one person, so that's good. But uh, my point wasn't that, you know, Conforto should be hitting like Schwarber or that, you know, the Mets picked the wrong person or whatever, but just that the, you know, it's frustrating to see Schwarber, who is in effect the other polished college bat in the 2014 draft, you know, 50 or so games ahead of Conforto because of the organization being a lot more conservative than the Cubs. Brooklyn must win. Yeah. But I think even coming out of the draft, realistically, you know, your timetable for Michael Conforto in a vacuum would have been like early 2016 at the, if everything went well. And so far, he's hit every level. Double A will be a test. Mm-hmm. And he's going to, I think, run into the same kind of lefties that give Brandon Nimmo trouble. We'll see how he does. I think it's a, it's not... You know, could they have moved him up two weeks earlier? Yeah, sure, probably. You know, could they have moved him up two weeks later? That's what they usually do. It's just not... And again, it's not about production, per se. It's just that a guy with that profile, you know, how much time does he really need to spend in the Florida State League? And nothing he did there was, I think, a particular surprise. Even if he didn't maybe mash to the level of, again, a Kyle Schwarber. Despite whatever I might be uh, invoking. All right, now the podcast is going off the rails a little bit, Steve. Our next email is from Carl. Podcast gang. I have a question about scouting reports on prospects, specifically regarding the recent Jeff Moore report on Ahmed Rosario. I understand why scouting reports might vary from scout to scout with respect to a prospect's tools and performance, as most reports come from seeing the prospect on different days. The prospect may have a good day, and his tools will play up for the scout, and on another day, the prospect tools might look flat for whatever reason. What I don't understand is how two scouts have differing physical profiles of the same player. For example, Jeff Moore in his BP Rosario report calls a player tall, thin, very skinny, will need to add weight, but narrow shoulders may not allow for much growth. In contrast, Kylie McDaniel's Mets top prospect list for Fangrass says that Rosario has the broad shoulders to project more strength to come, and even that some scouts think he may have to move to third base due to his frame, which seems to hint that he will get too big for short. In addition, McDaniel puts the above-average power grades on Rosario, while Moore has him below average. I get that Rosario is still developing, it's impossible to know how he'll mature physically, but how could two well-respected scouting sources be so far apart, especially with respect to a present-day physical feature in the broad, narrow shoulders? Thanks, love the podcast, Carl, who's Boom Shakalaka on Amazing Avenue. So the reason for that is Kylie McDaniel hasn't seen Ahmed Rosario live in three years. I know I'm, like, giving away the ghost here with national guys, but most national guys don't see these dudes. And when they're putting in their national top 100 lists or team lists, they're calling on scouts. Um, a lot of time it's team sources. You know, you know, BA is notorious, especially for uh, leaning on minor league coaches. Um, in some cases, it's player agents. Um, <laughs> so as far as, as if you want to go, like the up-to-date knowledge on Rosario, go for the guy you know, know saw him recently. 
you know, whether you agree with Jeff's evaluation or not. And I know he's been getting killed on Twitter while he's on his honeymoon for the last two weeks because Ahmed Rosario and, and Dominic Smith have had a good two weeks. Or a good month, really, to be fair, each. But, you know, go with the guy that's seen them most recently. As long as you believe he's a good evaluator, and I think Jeff is. But you, you see this happens all the time. It's very, very difficult to put together a national top 100 list. I've stopped reading them for the most part, to be honest, because you just can't have up-to-date reports on everybody. You're talking about it being a snapshot in time or whatever, but it's, you know, unless you have Kevin Goldstein's Rolodex, or Keith Laws, I guess, and Keith's list can be a little wonky, because Keith can be a little wonky, and he has his, like all of us, his sort of predilections and peccadillos when it comes to prospects. But you really, I, I, I'm at the point now where I want a live report on the dude. And I want a recent one, too. I think it's some of the things you saw was with Steven Matz last year. And I've talked about it with various people, you know, off air. It's like, I want to know when you saw a guy. If, you've, if you're inc- incorporating a live report into, like, a, a national top 100 ranking. You know, because Steven Matz in May of last year was a very different pitcher than Steven Matz in August. Mm-hmm. If you saw him in May, he probably didn't look like a top 100 arm. Even though he pitched very well in St. Lucie. You know, Brandon Nimmo in August of last year looked like a completely different player than the one I saw in April this year. Um, As for Rosario specifically, I'm biased here to a certain extent because I've seen the same things that Jeff has. You know, I saw him in Kingsport. I really wondered how much weight he was going to actually add. And the same of seeing him in Brooklyn, where he didn't... And he got bigger, but he didn't get... He's certainly not a guy that's going to be forced to move off shortstop because of his size. Um, And as far as the below average power goes, like, look, he has quick wrists. He's got quick hands, but he's not a big, strong, physical dude. He's just not. And if you see him play, it's—I mean—it's very obvious he's not. I mean, you saw him last year, Steve. Mm-hmm. He's just not a big dude. He's like wiry. Right. Yeah, I was just—I was thinking like string bean, but that's not a very good way no. to put it I mean, because not, that's is. usually tall. But wiry right. is a good way. Like, I mean, Chikini is more physically developed than he is. Well, I mean, and Chikini is a couple years older. But Chikini has sort of grown into his frame over the last few years in a way Rosario hasn't. Again, Rosario is only nineteen. He could get bigger, but it's unlikely he will get significantly bigger. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down in this, in terms of physical descriptions and players. That really what you should be looking for when you're looking at this kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, it's important. You do want to paint a picture. You know, if a guy looks like. Giancarlo Stanton, you might want to make mention of it. <laughs> or Joey Gallo, for that matter, or Chris Bryant, or Aaron Judge. Those are important details. Or uh, Luigi Yorme, in the other direction. Uh, you know, if your pitcher is 18 and 6'4", 160, you know, anything that helps you paint a picture of what this player is and what this player might become as important. I wouldn't, you know, really want to parse descriptions of shoulders. 
but I do think it speaks to the importance of seeing a guy live recently. And look, we can't see everyone. And the national guys have it way harder than me. I basically cover one team's affiliates, and I don't see everybody. I missed Yanoa and Matt's last year. Yeah, I didn't see Milton Ramos. I didn't see Andrew Church. It's like, I have one job. (laughs) And so there's always going to be a bias, too, for guys you've seen recently. I think. So you just have a better feel for them. Like, I have a much better feel for what Luigi Orme looks like as a major leaguer than Milton Ramos. I have a much better feel for what uh, Gabriel Yanoa looks like as a potential major leaguer than Robert Gazelman. I saw Robert Gazelman two years ago. But that's almost useless to me at this point. Live reports matter. And look, Kylie sees a shit ton of guys. But for the last couple of years before we took the Fangraphs gig, it was almost all on the amateur side because he was doing amateur stuff and draft stuff for Scout.com. You know, it takes a while to get back caught up. So until then, you have to lean on industry sources wherever they may come from. And they're not... You know, they have an agenda, too. They're giving you information for a reason. And one of the reasons I started to move away from national top 100 lists, as sort of a Bible of any sort, is that I see, like, demonstrably wrong tool grades on Mets guys. And not like you saw them on a good day. Like, no, that player does not sit 89 to 93. He maybe touches 91. Wasn't that a noted problem a few years ago for Met sources? Yeah, and again, it comes down to... I mean, there was the... I think the the place where I pointed it out, I think, the most sort of egregiously was the 2000... I'm going to screw this up. 2012 Brooklyn team. Because Baseball America completely fell in love with Louis Mateo that year had the Brooklyn pitchers all out of whack demonstrably wrong bad stopwatch times on Brandon Nimmo you know talking about three plus pitches for we're talking about Mateo's like well developed change up when I saw him three times I think he threw it once (laughs) like stuff like that and again you're at the mercy of whoever you're talking to now hopefully you have trusted sources that will give you good information but, you know, especially when you're getting into team sources, that's a dicey ground to be on. But in some cases, that might be all you have, because maybe your scout dude hasn't seen that player that year. I mean, it's... Being a prospect dude is tough. It's, there's a very small piece of the sort of baseball writing pie, and there's a lot of fucking guys doing it right now. Every sort of site wants to have their national prospect guy putting together a prospect you know I think Jason Parks did a lot of good work at Prospectus with sort of that model but that's a tough model to 
I mean, even at Perspective, it's a tough model to create, and it's certainly tough to uh, implement elsewhere. It just is. You can't see everybody. You know, internal team lists are always going to be better than any national top 100 list because they see everybody. Yeah, at a certain point, 100 top 100 lists become useless. And you'll have, obviously, the cream of the crop that majority of sources are all going to list at the top, but once you get to a certain level, it's just mix and match. Well, even that gets, like... There was a a minor snip fit on Twitter recently between Keith Law and Christopher Long over Paul Goldschmidt. Christopher Long used to work in the Padres analytic department, and he had, you know, he, Keith Law was was like making the thing about oh how badly he missed on Paul Goldschmidt and nobody had Paul Goldschmidt like uh, that high and Chris Long's like yeah actually on our internal list in the Padres we had him very high and Keith got a little like testy about it like well you're just saying that it's all like private it's like well yeah but I'm not why would I lie about this and Chris I mean Chris Long is is probably the best face of public sabermetrics on the internet right now. He's literally the smartest dude out there. It's it's ridiculous the stuff he just gives away for free. Um, I mean, you want like real, actually stats based analytics, like a guy that with a background that knows what he's doing that's worked for teams that just does fun weird stuff like completely predict the women's lacrosse field, <laughs> like down to the winner, like nailed the entire bracket or something ridiculous like that. We'll just give away like college catcher framing data. That's the guy to follow. It's at Octonian on Twitter. I think I've uh, pimped his account before on, on the podcast. But why would he lie about that? No reason to lie about it. Inter- and all those dudes saw, yeah, he probably had better sources on Goldsmith than Keith Law did. Absolutely. Because he worked for a team. NL West and everything. It has an organization and network of scouts that covers every other team. They get paid to do nothing other than scout baseball players. And look, you can make your whatever... Moneyball scout jokes, but when we're talking about prospects, these are the dudes that see the dudes and have the information you need to make these decisions. I mean, if you want to proclaim Dominic Smith cured because he's had a good month in St. Lucie, I don't know why I'm here. Our next email is from Max. What's your opinion on the automatic calling of balls and strikes? I'm looking forward to telling my kids that there was literally a man standing behind the plate and saying if a pitch was a ball and a strike. (laughs) The human element argument, i.e. the measurement error, is inherently interesting argument never resonated with me. Is the technology not there yet? Too much of a delay. Or is it just an umpire's union issue? Are there pitch FX cameras in the minors? What are your guys' thoughts? Uh, There are pitch FX cameras in the minors in some stadiums. Uh, you'll see the ones that allow you to have the game day option from their website or from the MLB MILB first pitch app. Have something uh, similar to sort of the old MLB game day pitch FX. Uh, the umpires union is going to be a problem here, certainly. Mm-hmm. But what it really comes down to, I think, is going to be calibration. I.e., the technology is not there yet. Because even, like, you see those, like, Twitter accounts, like Mets Ump, Cubs Ump, that retweet 
like heat maps of the strike zone and say, oh, only X percentage of umpires would have called a pitch here a strike. Those things drive me nuts. Because based on what? What are they calibrating off of? You know, it's a, a you're not pitch FX just sort of doesn't adjust for the player's height, the player's actual strike zone. So you need right. to find a way to do that. You know, you got to be able to measure Adam Dunn and Jose Altuve. That's a big. St- I mean, I was looking at the actual definition of the strike zone as per MLB, and there really isn't, you know, a definitive. That's definition. the other problem yeah. too. Yes. I mean, and they've made a complete hash of instant replay as it is. But I think, look, we'll get there. I don't know how old you are, Max. You're writing me from a .edu address, so probably younger than me. But I think in our lifetime, <laughs> you'll probably see something like that. I think we'll get there, and it'll be just as much of a source of consternation and Twitter hot takes as uh, sort of the umpiring is now. But it's going to be a while. Look, if you give me a system that'll quickly calibrate for each batter and, you know, instantaneous, whether it's a light going off or something else, you just need an umpire back there for foul tips and interference and plays of the plate and the like, I'm fine with that too, but it's going to be a while. Anything that's going to take away jobs from baseball is going to be fought tooth and nail. I mean, yeah. look at the you know the DH, the conversation. Well, you would, I think you would just be changing DH. the role of the umpire to more of it of administrator than adjudicator, right, which is fine. Right, right. And our final email is from Dave. We're done. Wow. I know. I, I that went faster than I thought it would. Yeah. Don't worry. We'll do like a half hour in elimination chamber. Probably. <laughs> Hey, podcast crew. Hope this email doesn't get to you all too late. This came in a day ago, so you're good. The Mets haven't been very fun to watch lately. I moved to Pittsburgh more than a decade ago, so when the Mets are my first love, I do watch and root for the Bucks. What baseball team, aside from the Mets, do you guys have soft spots for? Same thing with the minors, since Jeff, Greg, who has been MIA. Greg might be back next week. He's off on a course of professional development while I'm sitting here drinking on Monday night. Very and Steve do most of Amazing <laughs> Avenue's MILB coverage. What are your favorite non-Mets farm teams? Um, I guess in the past, I've had a soft spot for the Rays, though not so much anymore. Um, certainly Oakland still. I think most prominently right now is probably Toronto. I've taken to referring to them as the Poutine Mets. Since they have Ari Dickey and Jose Reyes, I think they signed Santana to a and Mike Nickius. And Mike and Josh Tolley. Oh, that's right, Josh Tolley. Mike Nickius is actually retired. He's like a college coach now, I think. Oh, whoops. Well, then they don't have Mike Nickius. They don't have Mike Nickius. They do have Josh Tolley, though, still. Um, and they have great uniforms. I was actually talking about this with uh, Kevin Kennedy, who runs the the Pitch Talks thing before the show, because he's obviously from Toronto and a Toronto fan. Like, I'm so glad they went to those, like, early, back to the early 90s uniforms. I don't like the lettering. You don't? See, I like the no. lettering a lot. Yeah, it's different, but... Eh. I think of the sort of... Taking out... Like, the really sort of classic... Looks. You know, the Dodgers and the Tigers. Even the Yankees to a certain extent. I don't love the Yankees road uniforms, to be honest. But the home ones are very nice. Looking at sort of like expansion era teams... 
like those 90, early 90s Blue Jays uniforms are the best uniforms in, of sort of any of those teams. I just can't get past the lettering. Oh, I love it. I love the I like whites. The I love the blues. I like the, the Blue Jay logo. The Blue Jay just, logo is awesome. It is nice. But like the white V-neck pullovers, mm, great jerseys. And also they have Jose Reyes and Ari Dickey. And that's, that is a pretty big deal breaker. Who's you have like an AL team? Um, I like rooting for the Orioles. I've been to Cam Camden is like the first like away park that I've ever been to, and it's very nice. And I I have a soft spot for Baltimore, so I like the Orioles. And um, the Mariners they have King Felix, so you have to root for them. Um, in terms of minor league teams, you got to root for the Biscuits. I mean, how could you not root for the Montgomery Biscuits? Their, their mascot is a biscuit. Weirdly, I've never... I mean, I've seen a lot of New Britain games back when they were a uh, Red Sox affiliate and then with the Twins, you know, for the for the bulk of the past. Oh, geez, they've been a Twins affiliate probably. Or at least they were. I mean, they're a Rockies affiliate now. They were a Twins affiliate for probably 15 years. I never... I don't... I never really... Never really fully... I never really got excited. I think they made the playoffs a few times, probably, but never really got too too crazy about it. I will say, unsurprisingly, as first reported by this podcast, hundred percent in on the yard goats next year, though. One hundred percent, I'll be rooting for the Hartford Yard Goats. That's the thing. I mean, for me, like you know, the only minor league teams that are around are you know. You have the Brooklyn Cyclones, which obviously Island, I'm going to yeah. root for. The Staten Island Yankees, I'm obviously not going to root for. And, you know, the Trenton Thunder, who, again, I'm obviously not going to root for. You know, those are the closest ones. So any minor league teams that I do that are, you know, outside of the Mets-Yankees kind of spectrum are basically I'm, I'm picking them because of, you know, their uniforms, their home parks, their mascots, whatever, their logos. I mean, I have a soft spot for the Fresno Grizzlies. I watched a lot of late night Yusmero Petit starts on, uh, of course, MILB TV when he was there. I have another Yusmero Petit bobblehead coming. I'm very excited. I snapped that right up. They had their giveaway, I think, on a Saturday. <laughs> um, I mean, when I was growing up, we had at least for a, a, a fair portion of my show, we actually had three minor league teams in Connecticut, three double A teams. Uh, in addition to the Rockcats, there were the New Haven Ravens and the Connecticut Defenders, which were at Yankees and then Giants farm team. I think the Ravens were the Rockies and the Yankees. I don't remember exactly. I might be missing an affiliate in there for one of them somewhere. And of course, Connecticut's now the uh, Norwich Navigators, which are the... I'm going to screw this up. I know this. The Tigers... Uh, Penn League affiliate. But I don't really... Again, I'm just really there to see Cyclones games. So I don't I don't get as invested sort of in the... Yeah, it's the thing. Like, you could... Like I was saying, like, there's teams that would be like... They have funny mascots. They they interest me. But am I really vested? You know, do I really follow them? No. Yeah. I can't think it's... of anyone that's really... Uh... You know, these teams aren't... Um... And again, it's a regional thing, too. It's like, I... I have a little bit of a soft spot for Lakewood, actually. 
because they treat me so well there. I say what it comes down to now, like in this role, it's like, what are the what are the teams that really treat me well? Because <laughs> that matters. Yeah, well, when you're doing what you're yeah. doing, yeah, absolutely. You know, Lakewood and New Hampshire both treat me really well, but again, it's like the Fisher Cats. I just can't get into the weird like. What is a Fisher Cat? Yeah. It's like a angry. Like it's like a really vicious. Like I think it's in the like the. I forget what exactly. I'm going to look this up now, because I don't remember what family it's in. But it's not a cat. It's not a feline. There is actually a Fisher cat, though. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Hmm. I forget what family it's in. Oh, it's like yeah, in the weasels. <laughs> no, it's like this like vicious, waterborne, nasty mammal. Hmm. Yes, Fisher cats have few, few predators aside from humans. Yeah, they kind of look like... They don't really look like weasels. They look like overgrown beavers, maybe? They don't have a beaver's tail, though. But from what I understand, they're like nasty little things. Well, this is a very educational podcast. Yeah. I had I had no clue. It's part of the Martin species, which hmm. includes... Here, help me out, Wikipedia... Listen specifically what a that doesn't help. Oh well. Well, whatever. Yeah. They're all inferior to the ham fighters, so that's all that. That is true. That's all it says. That's it. We're done with your emails. Once again, you email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com it just leaves us with our IFK Gothenburg update which will actually be brief they've only played one game since last show it was actually today it was a sort of boring sloppy 0-0 draw I think they remain two points at the top would have been nice to get the win I guess they missed a penalty would get a little bit more breathing room but that's life they have uh, I think Elfsburg the second place team on the road uh, coming up this Thursday so that'll be a big one Well, Let's talk a little bit about Elimination fun. Chamber, Steve. I'm being nice. nice leaving the wrestling for the end of the show so people can just, you know, turn it off if need be. I'm pretty sure that's half of our uh, listening base at this point. Yeah, probably more. <laughs> that's fine. I can never tell. There's a big, there's always a big overlap between wrestling and baseball Twitter, so. Not as big as I imagined it to be. I mean, the two matches I thought would be good were good. Yep, that's, that describes the pay-per-view perfectly. Uh, low expectations. For me, I'm gonna have to rewatch it, like sort of out of the moment. But I think Owen Cena might be my match of the year. Really? Yeah, and it it wasn't super great technically. It got a little spot festy towards the end. But I think sort of the the psych and the layout of it were just so good. That was my biggest complaint. Is that no, like I don't really have a problem with spot fests, and I don't have a big problem with uh, matches where you're constantly, you know, kicking out at two 
of of you know big moves as long as it's kind of a fast paced affair. And that match was not you know for the all of the kickouts it was not very fast paced. And so that's that was my biggest issue with it. I mean it was a fine match, and I was kind of surprised that Kevin Owens won without any kind of interference or shenanigans or anything. I wonder what they're gonna do with the rematch in two weeks. Cause it, it feels like one of those like WWE parody booking things, <laughs> where uh, you know Cena gets like sort of another he'll get the AA out of nowhere to sort of even the score or whatever. I'm sure that's gonna exactly what's gonna happen. I, I don't see the I, point I, of, of a I rematch. Just, I have this strange feeling that they're actually gonna follow through and have Owens win again, maybe in even more convincing fashion. I mean, I'd cross my fingers. I would like that to see him built up as a credible force in the WWE. And I don't think, think it I will happen. I was never a huge Kevin Steen guy when he's on the Indies. I liked him fine, but I didn't think it was anything special. But he's really kind of owned the bitter experience. Like it's it's such a weird character because normally you don't see a guy like Steen. Like occasionally you'll see announcers pay lip service to a guy like like Neville, for example, or Cesaro having wrestled quote unquote around the world or before he got to WWE or whatever. But the, Steen sort of having been an indie superstar that wrestled in Japan and Europe as being sort of intrinsic to his WWE character, I've never really seen them do before. And sort of the bitterness that comes out in that heel persona being due to that and him not, not getting the breaks that John Cena got um, is an interesting storytelling choice. I mean, I guess Punk when he was going through sort of the pipe bomb summer of Punk era did some of that and he laid the groundwork for Cena to be able to do it. It was never really central to his character though. No. Um, I just think it's really interesting that it's central to Steen's WWE character which is kind of cool. So I'm really pissed they teased the package pile driver and then didn't go through with it. Yeah, yeah I, that I should have been. That. If they had gone through that with the finish, it would have been like. I mean, I guess they want to keep the pop up power bomb as a finish, which is fine. But I just thought as soon as he started, I'm like, I, I like jumped off my couch. My mom and my sister who were watching with me. They're like, "What?" And I was just like, "You don't understand. You don't understand." You don't understand. <laughs> um, I mean, I think if it was anyone perfect. is it was an absolutely, and I look, I got to give John Cena credit because I was thinking about it. Um. I, however much credit you want to give him for the triple threat at the Royal Rumble it was a hell of a match so he certainly gets some of it I feel like I get another match I need to go back and rewatch and I feel like the Rollins and Lesnar performances were more memorable in that match than Cena's but he was he was certainly a major participant in that match. His match at Fastlane with Rusev was excellent. His match at Mania with Rusev was excellent. You know, he's had good TV matches with Neville and Sami Zayn. Again, you know guys that can certainly carry their end of it. Mm-hmm. He had this great match with Owens. He's had a lot of really good TV matches this year. And I think it sort of, like, there's some, like, I don't love him. His offense outside of, like, his big stuff always looks goofy to me. He did that springboard off the road. The springboard thing, stunner. That that was just terrible. Looking. Yeah, I mean, he'll always, like, he's like, Ugh. 
because people on the internet criticize his sort of like you know his version of the five five moves of doom he has kind of tried to expand his move set and doesn't always really work but um, <laughs> you know he it's one of those things where you look at he's very very good at laying out matches he's and he's capable of of, of playing the role that he did at the pay-per-view to perfection it's just that you know the stories he's asked to tell are never really that story. Sort of him as the indomitable force. But now that I think they've you know the Superman comebacks and whatnot, I think moving him away from the main event now. And look, the Rusev feud didn't go great. Uh, no, but I don't think that ever really was because of sort of the way their characters were positioned. Right, that's more of a booking issue than anything else. Yeah, you know, when you let him. I think he could be really compelling as if they sort of go forward with, you know, sort of this star potentially on the downside of his career type angle. Now, you can't push it too far. You have to be judicious with who he loses to. But losing too straight to, to Owens, besides completely making him for life, basically, <laughs> um, you know, it does open the door to a little bit more of that, I think. Well, I mean, he's at the you know he's at the point where he's John Cena, so he kind of transcends wins loses as yeah. it's like you said done judiciously. But I had this discussion with sort of the hate man where they've ne- I and mean, they've had opportunities to do this before. Like nobody beats him clean. Right, that you know, was Brian Lesnar. You know, Lesnar was already a huge star and a monster. You know, Brian. It certainly I don't know to say I mean, it. It definitely made Brian winning that match to a certain extent. And he was already fairly well established. He was at least of an upper mid card, if not main event level player. You know, he had won the world title before. You know, if not the WWE title with their weird sort of positioning of those two belts. But you know, they really to give essentially Owen's first WWE match officially, however you want to deal with sort of the NXT versus main roster conundrum to just cleanly go over John Cena like that as a whistle right I mean I was reading something today the last four clean losses that he had go back all the way to 2012 and like you mentioned it's Daniel Bryan Brock Lesnar and The Rock so to to put Kevin Owens in that company right off the bat you know you are fully your company is fully vested in him and he got mic time after the match. I almost wish... I mean, I'm fine with them setting up the rematch. I wish they had actually interviewed Cena or done, like, a Cena-Steen segment to set it up. I'm sure they're doing something right now. Yeah, probably. We're doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so the only other match of note... We'll just skip over the Elimination Chambers, both of which were horrible. Well, the tag match was an entertaining mess, and then it was a less entertaining mess. Yeah, it's... I expected it to be a complete clusterfuck, and it wasn't as much of a clusterfuck as I thought it would be, but... So, I mean, and that necessarily isn't a good thing. My bias against the Ascension sort of overwhelms any other feeling I have about the match. <laughs> uh, and the IC title match was a disaster. Yeah, that I don't know if I kind of just quickly fast-forwarded through that. But the main event was actually pretty good. I mean, I, it was... I, it's another match I'd like to just watch without sort of... Dex, but just sort of, like, waiting for the screwy finish. And it did kind of feel like sort of a post... Post-Austin heel turn Attitude Era main event Where it was like 18 minutes of really good wrestling And then some sort of screwy finish That explains it well 
and that kind of felt like that. I mean, they went with the old school dusty finish, which is amusing to me. Not really, though. But they almost told me they were actually going to... They waited long enough to do it, and they did enough after the initial ref bump that I'd forgotten about it and thought... I was so keyed in on the second ref coming in for because you always get a near fall there. Yeah. You never get an actual three count. I mean, I didn't even notice that Rollins pulled the ref over yeah. to bump him. I just thought the ref just happened to be in the way, so they yeah, did I mean, a good they job mentioned of... it. I think, I think Cole mentioned it. and I, just, I can't even deal with the commentary, so I just tuned it out most of the time. <laughs> But I, I was so focused on that. I'm like, are they really doing this for real? And then when they came back into the dust, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course they're going to go with the... I'm trying to figure out how they're going to do a DQ finish on Ambrose. I thought they are going to do like the DQ on Ambrose for hitting the ref, and they did it with Rollins doing it, so that's fine, whatever. I mean, it gets the same... End result is the same. The end result is the same, but it allows you know Ambrose to say he won the match and escaped with the belt, which was fine for what it was. You know, it builds to whatever they're going to do next nicely. And I think I saw TH, Tom Holzerman postulating that it might be a sort of a way to test how the audience would react to Ambrose winning which I mean it got a pretty good reaction from a pretty shitty South Texas crowd so that might lead to something good like Dean Ambrose winning the uh, title for real probably not though no I don't think so I mean they based on their past treatment of him I don't think that they're particularly vested him and if you consider that at the height of his popularity you know last summer they kind of cast him to the side i think that says enough via a bray wyatt hologram (laughs) yeah that was the thing that happened a pointless bray wyatt feud i don't there's really anything else to talk about because the two-match show it covers it all pretty much I feel bad for Neville having to go in the cooldown spot after the uh, Owen Cena match. Yeah. That was brutal. I mean, That's even tough. in NXT, Bo Dallas and Neville didn't really do anything for me. I'm just not a fan of Bo Dallas at all. He's just instant chance to channel kind of heat for me. Yeah, I'm not really either. I mean, he's... I don't know. Cesaro was awesome he... in the tag chamber, but Cesaro's always awesome, so... Right. I was kind of expecting Kalisto to do a little bit more craziness. I'm trying to think of, like, getting the... I mean, I assume getting stuck on top of the New Day chamber was a planned spot, but he really looked like he was having trouble getting out of there. Yeah, it's like, I thought that he was going to do something from off the top of the pod, and all that happened was he just sort of fell. There's like, like, don't die, don't die, don't die. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not a good, yeah. Again, it was an entertaining something cluster, seemed, and then it wasn't. Yeah, Something seemed off with that. Basically, you know, Tyson, Kidd, and Cesaro did a bunch of cool stuff in the middle, but you can see that in any Tyson, Kidd, and Cesaro match. So this is good timing. We actually wrapped about 20 minutes before the Mets game starts. Even better. I don't know how late I can actually stay up for this stuff anymore. I'm, like, old. Like, I've, I've discovered that this past... this past week, like... My wife had her commencement for a PhD on Wednesday, and congratulations! And she was—I didn't do anything. Um, she was to uh, her, obviously. <laughs> she was. Uh, we were in the city, and they got done around eight. I'm just like, I don't want to do anything. And I did pitch <laughs> talks, and partially this was my fault because I like walked around the West Village in the humidity, trying to find the spotted pig, which I did. 
and apparently just missed Taylor Swift and had a really good burger. By the time I got done with Pitch Talks, it was like 10.30, and Chris McShane was being lazy about organizing everyone for a post-Pitch uh, Talks drink, and they are talking about like, going down to 14th Street, and the 7 was right around the corner, and I'm like, eh, I'm old, it's 10.30, I can't do this anymore. And then Friday, after we left the Mets game, I'm like, I normally I would have stopped at, at, at my local in Queens for a drink, I'm just like, eh. So now I've got this sort of the prospect of a 10-10 Mets game after a large Pisco Sour. I'm just kind of like, well, Jacob DeGrom's pitching, so I'll probably watch. What check did you end up getting at the Mets at City Field? Oh, Bartolo Colon. Oh, good choice. Yeah, it was. It was. I, I I thought about the Duda, and if they had a a Familia one, I probably would have gone Familia. But in the end, I had to get Bay. So Bartolo Colon, it was. It's the only blue one I own. I'm not a huge fan of the blue shirts, just because, for whatever reason, like, that, like, Mets blue, it's like a primary color, doesn't look great on me as a general rule. Mm-hmm. But they they only had blue for cologne, I think. I wish they, I don't know, there's no, as far as, like, jerseys go. Like, the black jerseys, I wasn't a fan of the black jersey, but the black jerseys are actually, like, useful, because they go with everything. Yeah, it's a black shirt. I had an orange right at one point that was pretty cool, but I can, you know, it's orange. I had a white one as well. But the only yeah, options right now are really blue and gray. Gray, I guess, is okay with the New York, but I like the like the Met script, so. Blue and orange it is. The worst colors out there, so. It's true. <laughs> yeah, I just can't stay out late anymore. It's terrible. It's not like I drink lots, I just drink earlier. Hmm. I've drunk away another podcast. I think we're just about done. Alright. I'm thinking I can't really... I think you just about covered everything. Really isn't much that's changed from last week. I got a little cranky about scouting stuff, but that's to be expected. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like... And they didn't have a bad week. They swept the Phillies. They lost two out of three of the Marlins. But, you know, it's a four and two week. That's not bad. If they go four and two against San Diego and Arizona this week, which is possible, who knows? We'll probably be in the sort of the same spot for next week's show. <laughs> so they might actually be doing a six-man rotation then. That'll be the only difference. Instead of just talking about it, it'll be a thing that's happening. I guess I have to do a draft preview show at some point. When is the actual draft? The 15th? Something like that? That sounds about 10th? right. Yeah. June, June 8th to 10th. Oh. Yeah, there you go. So I gotta do it, like, next week. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I better send Alex a... Uh, well, Has Alex like, been revived from his hibernation? Yeah. I, it's not... They don't have a pick. I guess they do the second round the first day, don't they? I... They do the first two rounds think the first so. night? think so. I think so, but it's not televised. Is that right? Hang on. Um, I know... I the actual vaguely... draft page, that's just the order. That's not giving me any help. Because I guess Alex and I could do like a live show during the draft. We have the technology to do that now. That would be even more interesting. Maybe it's not televised... I don't know. There's no information here. I thought they did everything through the Comp B round the first day. 
and then they do 3 through 10, and then they do 11 through 40. That sounds right to me, but I don't remember. But regardless, I guess we're doing a draft show next week. So you have that to look forward to. Sorry, Greg, I have to wait another week. On our next edition of Amazing Avenue Audio.